Would you please turn with me to your study outline that's there in your program. And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho, and Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us today uh, for our study of God's Word. And we've just started a new series called The Parables of Jesus. And I have asked, as, we, as we're launching into this new series, I've asked our Bible scholar in residence, Dr. Carl Tony. This has been Tony Day up here, okay? Pastor Lisa was just up here with Purple Hearts, and uh, she's married to Dr. Carl. And, um, and I've asked him if he would just give us an introduction to the overall subject of the parables, what to look for as we study the parables in this series. Would you please give a warm Purpose Church welcome to Dr. Carl as he comes uh, to share with us. I guess if we had a uh, third Tony up here, we'd have a bad 80s Oh, band. man, that would be great. <laughs> Tony, Tony, Tony. Uh, so, <laughs> um, well, thanks so much, Glenn. It's great to be here. You know, as I was uh, coming to church, getting ready for this talk, I told the kids, look, we can't have the radio on. Uh, don't talk to me. I've got to practice my talk. And so I started to practice what I'm about to say to you. And then as, when I got done, I realized, you know, I'm talking about parables, but do my kids know what parables are? As I've been going on and on in this car ride on the way there. And so I, I turned to them and said, well, well what's a parable? And Pax, my seven-year-old, said, well, Dad, that's easy. Parables are just stories that are told to teach you something. It's like, wow, that's it. Parables are just stories to teach you something. I said, well, where did you learn that, Pax? He said, from Sunday school here at church. Like, I just love our children's ministry. I love everything that they're doing. I love the things that, that our children are getting taught at the church. It's truly incredible. And that's it, something as simple as what Pax already captured for a parable. But I want to talk to you a little bit more than just, they're not just stories to teach you something, but there's a few things that we can look at parables to help us have a little deeper understanding of what they're about. The first thing is with parables is that they often have a twist in them. Do you like stories that have twists? I know I like stories with twists. One of the most, uh, one of my favorite movies was The Sixth Sense, right? It's such a great movie where this kid who sees dead people and this guy that's been helping him to figure it out and process seeing dead people is a dead person. What? End of the movie. Sorry if I ruined that old movie for you. There again, Glenn ruins movies all the time. But that twist for us, that's what makes that story so brilliant. And what's great about the parables of Jesus is they often have a twist, a surprise in them that the hearers would not expect. And if you're feeling like parables are a bit stale for you, a little bit ordinary, it's like, ah, I've heard this one again, I want to encourage you to be surprised by Jesus and the parables because when he said them for the first time, people were shocked by what he had to say. And what's great about the parable that we're going to hear today is Glenn's going to talk to you about the shocking part of this, this parable. We still get shocked by it today, but you can look for those shockers in these parables. And I, I promise you that you will love to learn to wrestle with the parables when you start to hear how they shock you. The second thing about parables is that Jesus uses tangible things to talk about transcendent truth. Jesus uses the ordinary to talk about the extraordinary. He, uses, he talks about what it means to be a farmer, what it means to live in a city. He's talking about the experiences of a first century Jew. He's very relatable to the people in the first century because he's using and talking their language. But here's the challenge for you and I is none of us are first century Jews. We have to become time travelers. We have to be like my favorite TV show, Doctor Who, and enter into the TARDIS and go back in time and discover what it means to 
be a first century Jew. And when we do that, we discover that things are a little bit different. Our values are a little different. So even something as simple as the parable and the sower and the seeds. You and I, we hear that story. It's like, yeah, yeah, a guy threw around some seed. Not a big deal. Just go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and pick up a few extra seed packets. So what if he threw some stuff on the side? For a first century person, they would have been shocked by this farmer because a first century person only had a precious amount of seed that they had collected from the previous year's harvest. Their family's survival depended on making sure that every single seed that was sown in the ground came back with a harvest, because if it didn't, it could mean that someone in their family was dead. And so they're shocked that Jesus would compare God to that kind of sower, that sort of lavishness, that, that why would you do that with something so precious? And so we need to look for the ways that they shock us, but also how we need to go back in time like a first century person. And that's what's great about this series because that's what Glenn and the rest of the team are doing for us. Uh, the third thing about parables is that we often use the Bible and even parables, we treat it like it's a mirror. As if when we look at scripture that it's giving insights to my life, to my family's life, to my community, we make the Bible about me. How do I become a better person? How do I become a better father? How do I become a better employee? Now, there's, there's good things about that, but that's not what the parables are about. It's not what the Bible is about. The Bible is not a mirror offering you a reflection of your life. The Bible is more like a set of glasses offering clarity and insight into how the world works and, more importantly, who God is. And the fact is, is that in this world, we think that there's a lot of people in charge, don't we? Like in my family at home, sometimes I think I'm in charge. Sometimes Lisa thinks we're in charge. Uh, sometimes she thinks she's in charge. Like who knows who's going to be in charge? Or you go to your work and you think, who's in charge? My boss. Or we think about who's in charge of our city or our government. We often think about power structures and people being in charge. But what the Bible tells us, what Jesus tells us, is that we're really not in charge of our life, and other people aren't in charge of our life. God's in charge, and the parables remind us of what it looks like for the world that God is in charge, and how our values and lives changed when we put God in charge of our lives. And they encourage us to remember that God's in charge. Whoa, Dr. Oh, thank you, sir. Awesome, 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 good. Is this what you guys talk about over dinner and stuff like that? Okay, Carl's gonna run and teach his class. That was phenomenal. As he leaves, one more time, let Dr. Carl know that we love him and appreciate him. Okay, today we're gonna look, as he mentioned, at the parable of the shrewd manager. And this is one of the hardest, if not the hardest, most debated, most controversial of the parables. We're going to really kick in with a bang today because this one is really a hard one to understand and it's controversial and it's constantly debated. Let's pick it up with verse 1, chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, a manager in that culture would have great authority to do business on behalf of the owner. Uh, he could negotiate. He could make contracts. It was a powerful position, and it was a well-paid position. Uh, we pick it up now with verse 2. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. You're fired. Now, this would have ruined him. Because he was a well-paid, uh, he was not used to working with the hands and, and, and digging ditches and the kind of thing he would do if he didn't have this position. The only thing he was qualified to do other than this particular position. And so he was unlikely to get a comparable job. There were not many of these jobs around, and now he had a bad reference on his resume. 
Uh, Picking it up with verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I mean, I have to admit, this is what keeps me on the straight and narrow as a pastor, all right? Because my goodness, I am not qualified to do anything except, except this, you know? And so my, my mentor, he used, to, he, used to challenge, he used to say this to me. He says, Glenn, if you mess up morally, if you mess up and fail, what are you going to do? Sell cars? And, and, and the fear of selling cars has, has just lingered with me through all these years. Don't get me wrong. We have many great car salesmen within our church, and they do an unbelievable job. I am not the guy to do that job. I, I we can't find gas tanks on rental cars. Right? You know, so that is not my thing. And so I really identify with this guy. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do, get a sign and stand by the exit ramp of the 10 freeway? I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, let's, let's hang on that for just a moment. When I lose my job here, All of us someday are going to lose our job here. Uh, We're going to close down this life. This life is going to be over. This life is just a moment and then eternity. We're all going to lose our job. Not not just our job job, but all of our jobs. All all the things we do in life. It's going to be done someday. So that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, well, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Don't you wish you had owed that man money, I'm telling you. Uh, the master commended the dishonest manager. Here comes the twist that Dr. Carl was talking about. Here comes the surprise. There may have even been a gasp in Jesus' audience. They would have thought, and so fire came down from heaven and burned up the embezzler. That, that's the way it was kind of, kind of play out. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own than are the people of the light. Okay, here's the twist that Carl was just talking about. He commends him for doing something that's wrong. And this is why this is the most debated parable. This is why it's the most controversial parable. Uh, let me give you three of the, the answers. I, I believe the third one's the best. Number one, uh, some uh, Bible scholars believe that, well, what he's doing is he's foregoing his commission. And so just like a real estate agent will throw in part of their commission to kind of make the deal happen, he's throwing in his entire commission, and so uh, that's why he's actually a good guy. Uh, or some would say he's, he's shaving off the interest because the owner, as a, <coughs> as a Jew, should not be loaning money at interest to a fellow Jew. Uh, back in the book of Moses, in the book of Leviticus, uh, that's commanded not to charge interest in that way. And so the manager is actually helping the owner to be a more ethical person uh, by taking the interest off of it. Well, uh, most Bible scholars reject this. They say, you know what, you wouldn't include, in the way the story is written, you wouldn't include the manager's commission in the price. And plus, at the end of the story, Jesus calls him the dishonest manager. So he's not a good guy. Jesus says he's not a good guy. Here's a second theory, uh, is that the, the manager backed the owner into a corner 
where he had to praise what the manager had done. I mean, imagine the position of the owner. Everybody's coming to him, thank you, thank you, you're the greatest, thanks for knocking the price down like that. What's he gonna do? Wah, wah, no, sorry, that was a mistake, you owe me the full thing. No, he's not gonna do that. And so some would say, well, he, the, the manager kind of backed him into a corner where the owner had to praise the manager. But most Bible scholars say, nah, that's just reading too much between the lines. That makes for a nice theory, but there's really nothing in the text that would support that. Here's, here's what is the third explanation, and I think the best explanation is probably number three. And that is when Jesus uses an illustration. He's got a main point, and he's not approving everything that the person in the illustration does. He, he tells the story for a main point. And that doesn't mean that he's approving of embezzling or everything else uh, that the person in the story is doing. For, for example, let me give you an example. Jesus says when he comes back the second time, he's going to come back like a thief in the night. Now, Jesus simply means by that it's going to be unexpected. When somebody robs your house, it's unexpected. So that's what Jesus is saying, is that it's going to be unexpected when he returns. He doesn't mean that thieves are good. He's not saying, yeah, go out and rob houses. That's the point of my story. No, he's saying, when I come, it's gonna be unexpected. Let me give you an example from history and then a more contemporary example. Here's one from history. I was riding in my car and, and kind of praying about this and thinking what would be a good illustration for this. And since I didn't have seven-year-old packs there in the back seat uh, to give me answers to that, I just had to come up with it on my own. And all of a sudden on the radio, I was listening to a satellite Christian radio that I, that I just love in my car. And all of a sudden, uh, one of my favorite Christian groups comes on uh, for King and Country. They're an Australian uh, group. As a matter of fact, their sister, um, Rebecca St. James, did a concert at our church a number of years back. And now her two brothers have formed uh, for King and Country. And they have a song that's very popular now on Christian radio called Burn the Ships. And it's just a great illustration about how we're supposed to, to burn the ships behind us so that we're full speed ahead when we follow Jesus. And what he's referring to is an historical incident that happened back in 1519 where Cortez, one of the conquistadors, uh, came over to the New World. What he did is he unloaded all of his soldiers onto the beach uh, before they were gonna do the conquest of Mexico. And he unloads all of them uh, there on the beach, and then he has them stand there and watch while he burns the ships in the harbor so that all the soldiers knew there was no going back home to Spain. No going home to mama, okay? Yeah, it is full speed ahead, and he thought they would fight better if they knew they could never return. And so it's a beautiful picture of the Christian life, isn't it? That when we follow Christ, when you choose to follow Christ, take the ships of your old life, the things that you used to worship, and burn them in the harbor because now you're following Jesus. Or it's a great marriage illustration. That when you get married, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. You burn all your old relationships in the harbor. You, you burn the past behind you. You don't follow your high school sweetheart on Facebook, okay? That, that's what you don't do. You burn that relationship, not the person, but the relationship. You burn them in the harbor. Uh, and, and, and you don't use the word divorce. Now, sometimes divorce happens, and, and obviously God mends and heals and, and, and will, bring, will bring you back from that. And our church is full of people that God has restored and, and done a wonderful thing in the next chapter of their lives. But when you're married, um, don't use that word. Burn that ship in the harbor. 
We're, we're not returning to our old life. I'm not returning to my single life. The ships are burning in the harbor. It's full head of, uh, speed ahead in this marriage that I've committed myself uh, before God and witnesses and to this other person. So it's a, it's a beautiful illustration for marriage. It's a beautiful illustration for the Christian life. But I'm positive that for king and country, does, they're not saying that everything Cortez did when he conquered Mexico was right and just. I can guarantee that. They just think it's a cool illustration. They're not saying, yeah, Cortez was a great guy and everything he did was filled with justice and everything he did was right. Uh, when I use movie clips, I'm not affirming everything about that particular movie. Uh, when I quote someone, I'm not affirming everything about that person. I just think what they said um, was, was, was helpful. Uh, let me give you a contemporary example. For example, in the past 48 hours, social media has been just exploding with talk about Jesus. Just exploding. And the reason was that on Friday, Kanye West dropped his album, Jesus is King. Now I listened to it, uh, the whole album on Friday while I was working on my sermon. You wonder, what does Glenn listen to while he's working on his sermon? Yeah. Usually it's movie scores. Usually that's what everybody gets, all my kids get me for Christmas. They get me movie scores. That's what I like to listen to. You know, Braveheart or Gladiator, you know, while I'm preparing my sermon, I like to listen to, to movie scores. But this particular day, I, I, I listened to the whole album by Kanye West, Jesus is King, because I knew everybody was talking about it. And I'm telling you, it is just blatantly and unapologetically Christian. It is just blatant, man. And, and my favorite song hit it, and Pastor Eric, you are just going to love this, is a song about Chick-fil-A entitled Closed on Sunday. All right, it is just, it is just a, a beautiful song. And, and the main point of it is, is that he's challenging us to close down everything in our lives on Sunday and get your family to church on Sunday. Now you know why it's my favorite song, right? Now you know why it's my song. He said, everything should be closed down on Sunday. Every other aspect of our life closed on Sunday so we can get our family to church and we can pursue God. Here are the words uh, to the song. Closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A. Closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A. You my Chick-fil-A. Uh, get your family. Y'all hold hands and pray. When you got daughters, always keep them safe. Watch out for vipers. Don't let them indoctrinate. Closed on Sunday, you my Chick-fil-A. You're my number one with the lemonade. <laughs> raise, raise our sons, train them in the faith. Through temptations, make sure they're wide awake. Follow Jesus, listen and obey. No more living for the culture, we nobody's slave. Stand up for my home, even if I take this walk alone. I bow down to the king upon the throne. My life is his. I'm no longer my own. I pray to God that he'll strengthen my hand. Chick-fil-A. How many of you are hungry right now? You can't do a thing about it until tomorrow because it's closed on Sunday, all right? Now, that's a great song. I, I love the whole album. Love the song. You know, there's no bad words in it. No, there's not a parental warning on this album. It's clean as a whistle, no bad words in it. Now, that's a great song. Now, do I agree with every unusual thing that Kanye West has ever said? 
Okay, let's admit it. He's out there, all right? Do I believe with everything that Kanye West has ever said? No. But I agree with that. I, I agree with that. And, and so that's what the parable of the shrewd manager is like. It's Jesus given a point from it, but he's not saying that, that, that everything this uh, unjust manager did was right. David Wenham, uh, here, here's the main point of this parable. So the parable of the unjust steward speaks of the need to prepare for the future crisis of judgment by practical generosity in the present. He says, you leverage the stuff of this life because there's a judgment day when we're going to be held account for how we use the time and resources in this life as we enter into eternity. And so you need to prepare for the future crisis of judgment by practical generosity to people in need, to the poor, and to God's work, practical generosity in the present. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, Matthew was a biographer of the life of Jesus. There are four biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Another biographer of the life of Jesus, uh, Luke, uh, he tells about a different time um, of, of the story of Jesus and how he said this. In Luke chapter 12, verse 33, he puts it this way. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. I love this quote by Bono. Uh, he says, it's not a coincidence that in the scriptures, poverty is mentioned more than 2,100 times. It's not an accident. That's a lot of airtime. 2,100 mentions. Okay, back to what Jesus said. Uh, Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus says that when we obey the main point of this parable, three things, we'll end up with three things. Uh, we will end up, number one, with friends in heaven. He says in, in verse 9, back to chapter 16, I tell you, use worldly wealth, okay, leverage the stuff of this life, the possessions, your, your money, your time, your resources, to gain friends for yourselves, and not just in this life, as we're going to see in a moment. So that when it is gone, now this is another phrase. He says, when my job is over, when it's gone, everything's eventually going to be gone. Everything of this life is going to be gone except for one thing. Relationships. Relationship with God through Jesus and relationships with other people and who you take with you to heaven. So that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. When you walk through the gates of heaven, there'll be people there because, because you gave to God's work. There's going to be people there from other countries that you've never even seen before, and they'll say, I'm here because of your generosity. There's going to be people here that our church reaches for Christ, and, and maybe you've never met them before, but they're going to say, I'm here because of your generosity. We're, we're going to be welcomed into heaven. There, there will be poor people who were fed who will welcome us as we walk into heaven. They'll say, I, I, I was fed in this life and I was fed spiritually so that I'm here for eternity because of your generosity. 
so that when it is gone, and it will eventually be gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Uh, John Piper writes, the more sacrificially generous you are here, the more you will enjoy heaven. Relationships are the currency of heaven. Money is the currency of this life. Relationships are the currency of heaven. That's why you hear me say all the time that your one assignment from God is to go to heaven and to take your oikos with you because relationships are the currency of heaven. Now, here's a little factoid. Now, I wonder if you've ever heard this before until I encountered it. I'd never heard it on the news or any of the reports about 9-11 down through the, the years since that happened. When the World Trade Center towers collapsed on 9-11, did you know that $106 million worth of gold was buried beneath the towers? How many of you, like me, didn't know that? Didn't know that, okay. I never heard it on the news reports. I mean, and there's been all kinds of movies and reports and everything about 9-11. Don't know. You never heard that $106 million worth of gold was buried beneath the towers. You know why we don't know that? Why it's not talked about a lot? Because when you lose 3,000 people on a day, who cares about the gold? It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant compared to those 3,000 precious people who lost their lives. And when the walls cave down on this life, when this world fades away, when this world is destroyed, when it's all gone, who cares about the gold? It's the relationships that carry on in heaven. Eleanor Roosevelt once said, he who loses money loses much. He who loses a friend loses much more. He who loses faith loses all. The currency of heaven is faith and friends. And the second thing Jesus says, we'll take it with us, is true riches in heaven. Uh, Verses uh, 10 through 12, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? He says that the reward of heaven is is based on our faithfulness in this life. Now, Jesus taught this, and and we have the advantage of following Jesus and hearing what he had to to say to guide our lives. But you know, some people, even if they're not following Jesus, they they can discover it on their own. Uh, Bill Gates, one of the wealthiest men that ever lived, said, I believe the returns on investment in the poor are just as exciting as success is achieved in the business arena, and they're even more meaningful. Oprah Winfrey, one of the wealthiest women that ever lived. To me, the money is certainly a wonderful thing, but it is in direct proportion to how you're able to bless others with it. And then number three, to obey this parable of Jesus means that we can better keep the greatest commandment. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 22, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Uh, verse three. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is loving God 
and loving other people. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and it is impossible to keep the main thing the main thing uh, when we are chasing lesser things. When we're chasing lesser things, it's hard to keep the two greatest commandments as the main thing. Uh, Jesus said in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Uh, there's a principle in business that if you chase two rabbits at the same time, you won't catch either one of them. That's a business principle that talks about focus, whether it's here at church in our ministry or whether it's in business or in your job or in your work. If you chase two rabbits at the same time, you, you won't catch either one of them. And so how Jesus would put it is this. You've got to pick which rabbit you're going to chase. Everybody can only chase one rabbit in life. You've got to pick which rabbit you're going to chase. Now, don't expect the culture to support you in this. Don't expect the people around you to make this easy. Uh, my friend Dane Ocker says, don't expect anyone to understand why you've had a priority shift. In verse 14, uh, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And people, when you get a different set of priorities, they will sometimes sneer at you like they sneered at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. I love the story, supposedly a true story, of some pranksters that broke into a, a Kmart um, uh, one night. And by the way, isn't it nice to have our cool, new, contemporary lead gray roof we don't look like a Kmart anymore. Here we don't, the, the green roof is gone. It is gone. And we don't look like a Kmart anymore. And Kmarts are folding all across the country. So maybe that's a good thing. But they broke into a Kmart one night and they didn't steal anything. You know what they did? They spent the whole night switching price tags on everything. Now imagine if you could come in the next morning and you had the corrected price list. You could avoid things that have a high price tag when they're really not worth that much. And you could get a deal on things that have a low price tag, but, but they're actually very valuable. That's why I encourage you to, to get to church on Sunday. After all, Chick-fil-A's closed on Sunday. Where else would you go? Yeah, that's why I encourage you to read God's Word on a daily basis. Uh, that's why I encourage you to be in part of a life group, small, big, serve. Uh, be part of a small group where you can be challenged by others to obey, to, to listen to God's voice. I loved what Jared prayed earlier. My goodness, aren't his prayers good sometimes? They, they really, and he prayed, God, teach us what your voice sounds like. And so on a daily basis, we need to listen for his voice. Teach us what his voice sounds like. On a regular basis, we need to be in our life group where we can hear through others encouraging us what God's voice sounds like. We can be here on Sunday morning and, and our kids in Sunday school so that they hear what, what God's voice sounds like because this is the corrected price list. This, God's word will tell you, look, the, the culture and the world, the, the society around you says that's super valuable. Sell out your life to that. He says it's not really that valuable. It's going to be gone someday. Don't mess with it. But this thing over here, the culture says has a low price tag on it, that's actually something very valuable. It's going to last forever. Chase that rabbit. 
And so God's word tells us what rabbits to chase and what rabbits to avoid.